However, they are spotted by a guard who asks them what they're doing. By the perimeter wire. By the perimeter wire. The to cutters. <laughs> I think this guard was a little bit gullible. Hello and welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. So this episode, we're covering aircraftsman Jacob Gavelba of 33 Squadron. And this has a couple of interesting... Angles uh, to it. It does have a couple of interesting angles to it, which is why this one stood out. So this is interesting and sadly falls into one of those cases where, whilst we try and do an awful lot of work into the various backgrounds of the people Mm. that we talk about, there's actually very little before and after the war on Jacob. What we do know for certain is that his pre-war profession was in the police force, in the Mm -hmm. Palestinian police force, which kind of ties up with 33 Squadron, because in the war they were part of the Middle Eastern Command. Okay. 33 Squadron is actually still in existence, and it's currently based at RAF Benson, which is something very close to my heart, being where voter reconnaissance were. But he was aircraftman. Actually, he would have been involved as ground crew, refuelling aeroplanes, getting them out of hangars, towing them around with tractors... Mm -hmm generally on the airfield moving these these aeroplanes around. And what was interesting looking into this, so the date of May 41 in Crete was, was quite a difficult time on Crete. Obviously the, the Germans had invaded the island mostly by glider-borne troops and parachutists and it was some quite bitter fighting, I understand. 33 Squadron had actually evacuated off the island on the 27th of April, which is about a month before Jacob was in action. So when I then looked into it, so they'd actually got the aeroplanes off the island but left most of the ground crew behind with the one remaining squadron which was 80 squadron and they were left to continue to defend the airfield Um, but even then 80 squadron had to be evacuated at the end of May which is about when Jacob was captured a very very hard fought ground so he was fighting at Malim Aerodrome which we've actually come across before we have in Hargis's escape he actually fought there now he was ultimately captured in North Africa so if you remember he met Rommel that's soon right, after yes. his capture however Jacob Gavelber does talk about a little bit of the fighting because he says that the aerodrome was captured by German parachutists which ties in because a lot of the invasion of Crete was airborne however he wasn't captured there he actually attempted to make a bit of a run for it right and effectively fled for the hills yes along with 16 other ground personnel under a flight lift and so they tried to make a getaway through the hills of Crete. However, ultimately, because of shortages of food, water, supplies, that shelter... And it's a hot country, a hot, isn't it? hot yes. country that they don't necessarily know. And ultimately, they had to capitulate and were captured on the 23rd of May. Interestingly, actually, although the officer, the flight lieutenant previously mentioned, was separated off, the 16 ground crew were actually sent back to the same aerodrome yeah. in order to service it and get it back to working order well, as prisoners of war. Well, of course they were. I mean, the Germans need a way of bringing supplies in to continue their advance and capture of the island. So yeah, it makes perfect sense. But harsh conditions to work under. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So what really brought this home to us that makes it an interesting escape is Jacob himself. So We've what, said he's from Palestine. We have said he's from Palestine. But what he makes out in his own report is that he's obviously Jewish. 
Mm-hmm. So typically, but not exclusively, if you were a Jewish prisoner of war, you would tend to be inclined to stay within a prison camp once mm-hmm. you were caught. To escape would give you far greater risk, whereas there was some relative protection under the Geneva Convention if you were within the camp. Because, of course, you had the protecting powers, inspecting the, the standards of the camp, the safety of the individuals. Of and you were registered as a competent before the Nazis even had an opportunity to try and work out whether you were Jewish or, or any Christian. other religion. Yeah. for that matter exactly so this is what really made this stand out because obviously mm. spoiler alert again he escapes which would have been a much more riskier it's a brave move it is a very brave move yeah so so hence why you know being put into hard labor to get the the aerodrome back up and running you, one would feel inclined that now that you're captured this is your destiny for the rest of the war but that's not quite what happened was it it's not, it's not how he saw it certainly yeah in the immediate short term not a lot happened on the escape front you know he's still in Crete he's been working on the aerodrome he was actually moved to a hospital a former British hospital and he worked in the cookhouse at the hospital but he worked as an interpreter there now that's actually quite an important little detail so did he speak several languages then yes he did and he actually in his report he actually talks about being able to speak German and Polish now he must have had at least rudimentary English by virtue of the fact that he was in the RAF Hmm. and therefore would have at least needed to have communicated with the people around him which would make sense because obviously Palestine at the time was a what was the mandate of Palestine Mm. it was it was a British British administration yeah so and had been since 1920 and Mm -hmm. it but equally you say that he speaks Polish there's obviously every possibility that he might not have been Palestine national he could easily have been one of the migrant Jewish community that went to Palestine from Eastern Europe from Eastern Europe from the 1920s to well 1948 I think it was so so there's every chance that he could have a good working knowledge extremely likely as you said earlier we've put in a lot of effort to try and research his background his history both before and after the war and there's not a lot out there but I think you you can reasonably surmise that the likelihood is he is quite possibly of Eastern European descent who has emigrated out to the Palestinian British protectorate the mandate out there has served in as a constable in the police force and has now joined the Royal Air Force. The Royal Air Force. Yeah. Uh, so interpreter would be a really good job for... Would make a lot of sense because yeah. he, you know, he says himself that he speaks German, he speaks Polish and probably speaks at least rudimentary English if not relatively fluent mm. English. So he's working in this hospital as an interpreter in the cookhouse. And he was there for a couple of weeks actually. It says two or three weeks and then 10 RAF ground personnel including himself were sent to a transit camp in Athens. Right. Now it was actually in Athens that his interrogation took place. Now it's fairly common common for newly captured yeah but he's been captured a war to be interrogated but yeah as you say he's been captured a while he's been captured for a month or so by this stage interestingly picking up on the point about being able to speak fluent English the interrogator there asked him why his English wasn't completely fluent because they of course assumed that a member of the RAF would speak fluent English and his answer is actually quite clever because he states that he's from Wales and that his mother tongue was Welsh ah yes not wholly dissimilar from Embry speaking Gaelic which was actually Urdu but the Germans didn't know the difference. There was no real way that they were going to know whether he's speaking Welsh or not. Of course. And, and it seems to have been a fairly common trait for prisoners often to pass themselves off as a different nationality from the one that they were assumed to be. He actually even gives himself a fake name and says that his name is Gilbert. Now, going back to picking up on, on the Jewish point, I do wonder if at this stage he is effectively trying to protect himself, mm. knowing full well that he was not amongst friends. Yes. And therefore he had an opportunity as a member of the RAF to 
to present himself as a British citizen, effectively, mm. and so stated that he was Welsh. Did not speak English that well. Good cover. Good cover. His mother tongue was Welsh. Very little chance that the Germans would actually know whether he was telling the truth or not. Yeah. But also, he was able to at least protect his Jewish heritage mm. by virtue of the cover of being a Welshman called Gilbert. Absolutely. Yeah. Interestingly, having fed them something of a cock and bull story about being Welsh. Interestingly, the Red Cross form, this infamous Red Cross form, oh, makes good. its traditional appearance That's at this right. stage. He, he states that I put down my name and rank, but when the officer showed me other completed forms which contained the number of the squadron, I added that also. Okay. A bit of peer pressure there. A, a little bit. In. Not beyond the realms of possibility that they were fake forms, but what I'm finding interesting about that is the different tricks that the interrogators use to try and get additional information out yeah. of With the same form that has turned up on every, exactly. I think, every escape of this series. Pretty much, yes. So from Athens, he was actually taken to Dulag Luft. We know that well. We do indeed. In fact, pretty much every RAF escaper went through Dulag Luft at some stage or another in I, the war. I believe so, yeah. yeah. Yep. That or it's, uh, there was a secondary camp set up later in the war, but also not just British, actually. I think the American servicemen went through there. So effectively, if you were in the Allied Air Forces, you probably visited Dulag Luft after you were shot down. Yes, absolutely. Now, he didn't actually stay there for very long. He was only there for about a week, three of which were spent in solitary, which is actually not that common. It's quite a short period. Typically, three or four weeks was quite common, mm. even the norm. So this is quite a short period. But because he was of such a low rank within the RAF, yeah. I think the assumption by the Germans was basically that there was not a great deal of intelligence to be interrogated out of this guy. Yeah, Probably not unreasonably. An aircraftsman probably wouldn't have... Wouldn't Had much have. access to much operational information. So from Dulag Luft, he was actually moved to Lambsdorff. Now, its official title is Stalag 8B. And it is now located in Poland in a place called Lumbinovici. Mm-hmm. So I understand it was one of the largest prisoner war camps and so that might by virtue of sheer numbers have contributed to the fact that it actually had the highest number of successful escapes during the war. And of course you've covered this camp in a, in a previous escape. While the sheer numbers theory probably does stack up fairly well I think it was actually quite an escape minded camp and that's kind of borne out by the fact that he was there for about a year and actually made two escape attempts himself right. during this period. So in the first instance we're already kind of seeing him breaking the mould slightly in the sense that he is straight into the escape attempts, straight into the escape mindedness. You said earlier, typically but not exclusively... Would stay within the camp system. Tended to stay in the camp system because they had the relative degree of safety there. He is breaking that mould almost immediately. So yeah, so whilst he's he's not within the traditional mould of staying within the camp system, he does also fall into the mould which is less known about, which is that it was largely non-commissioned officers who were escaping, whereas we generally tend to hear about the officer escapes because they wrote books about it after, after the war. So we yes. generally tend to know those. So whilst he's not fitting within the mould that we would expect, he actually fits into the greater mould of uh, the group of people who were most likely wanting to get out of the camp. Yes, absolutely. And what, what I find quite interesting about his first escape attempt and we'll, we'll go through them briefly because I think there's some quite oh, interesting some worthy points ones, yeah yes. there's yeah, yeah. some interesting points in all of them so in this first escape attempt which took place in May 1942 so about six months or so after he arrived in the in the camp he was actually paired with a Sergeant Hopkins of the Welsh Guards now I can only assume it's because of their shared nationality that they were put together good point point. and he was actually paired with this Sergeant Hopkins and it says specifically because of his knowledge of Polish and German so it's his fluent knowledge of the language that the escape committee that the escape paired, committee has paired, paired him up with this Sergeant Hopkins. And of course the assumption that as he's claimed to be Welsh and he's of the Welsh Guards does the, tend the to... The assumption from the external 
point of view as in the German point of view would actually make sense. It would almost reinforce this false name, false narrative that he's established around himself to be paired with the Welsh Guard. So it, it does actually make quite good sense for yeah. him to be paired with Hopkins. I, I like it. It's a nice twist. So having been paired with Hopkins, his fellow Welshman, managed to get hold of some civilian clothes. He doesn't say how, but I think there might be a reasonable assumption here that the escape committee were involved in this here. Yeah. You know, he says explicitly he's being paired up with them, so I, I think it's fair to say that the escape committee were probably quite heavily involved in this one. And so wearing battle dress over these civilian clothes that they got, they managed to get over the wire of the compound and went behind the kitchen where they started cutting the perimeter wire. So they climbed over the compound but are now cutting the perimeter wire. I see, yep. However, they are spotted by a guard who asks them what they're doing. By the perimeter wire. By the perimeter the wire. To cut us. <laughs> I think this guard was a little bit gullible. Possibly. <laughs> because they claimed that they were repairing the wire. As you do. And he believed them. Oh, well they, that's a new one. It is, because they actually got out. So they managed to cut a hole in the perimeter wire and got through the wire. And in fact, they were even spotted outside the wire. And so they grabbed a couple of brooms and claimed they were sweeping the street on the road outside of the camp. Wow. I've never come across this before. There seems to be quite a lot of very gullible guards. And so they made their way to a nearby cemetery. It was here that they got rid of the battle dress and were now in civilian clothes. However, within an hour, they were actually stopped by German soldiers. So almost immediately, they, you know, they've only... You won't have got far. Yeah, they won't have got far. I can only assume a less gullible guard was, was not taken in by the gap in the wire as a form of repair. That would make sense, yes. Yeah, so sent out... People to go and find a, them. A patrol to go and find them, and they were recaptured within an hour. Now, to be fair to Hopkins, he did try and make a run for it, but he was fired at. He wasn't shot and killed, but was recaptured. Okay. So he didn't get much further. However, what I did quite like about this particular escape attempt, and I didn't want to pick up on briefly, was the fact that they made quite clever use of the rhythm, the the life of the camp. As in, you know, they, they try to pass themselves off as repairing the oh, wire. Yes, you know, they're, they're yes. sweeping the they're sweeping the road. They've been quite clever at using the paraphernalia that lies around the camp. However, people of their particular rank would be doing more jobs like this than the, than the officer camps would a- a- be. Absolutely, they'd be it much more working have, camps. It would, as much as we've kind of said the guards are gullible, it actually wouldn't have been completely out of the the realms of reality for them to have been detailed to sweep the road or to repair a wire or what have you. It's just, to us, it seems extremely suspicious that they've got two junior ranks claiming to repair a wire that they're probably very clearly cutting. Cutting wires makes noise. Yes. That's not a repair kit. Yes. So they were, of course, sent to the cooler and then returned to the compound. But only a month later, on the 4th of September, they made a second attempt with a private Jack Taylor, who was also a Welsh guardsman. So there's a definite... There's a Welsh connection. Yeah, a definite Welsh theme. He must have really got into the character of being this Welshman called Gilbert. Yes. Good on him. So he states, we cut the wire at dusk. About 18 altogether got out through this hole. We went first. We walked to Crapitz, which is now, I looked this up, it's now Krapkovice, which is about 40 kilometres away from Lambsdorff. And again, there they were stopped by Germans, partly because they were wearing quite poor civilian clothing. And so they tried to, they basically tried to pass themselves off again as repairmen, because this time they claimed they were telephone wire repairmen. If it's worked once, why not try it again? Exactly. Yeah. And to be fair, it did. <laughs> they they were allowed to go. He states here that we were allowed to go. And from a, s- a small station near Krapitz, we got a train to Katowice. Here I told a Polish woman that we were escaped prisoners of war who took us under the wing and found a shelter in a barn. Now, by this point, they're kind of on the frontier of Poland and 
Germany. In Poland, you had a better chance of finding a sympathetic civilian to help you out, which, of course, has happened. But once you reach Germany, that possibility ceases to exist. Of course. However, despite their best efforts to try and cross the border into Germany, they weren't successful, so they actually end up making their way to Krakow. And it's a fair distance away, actually. It's about 220 kilometres east as the crow flies. So they've actually travelled... That's a long way. ...quite a long way by and this And no stage. mention of bicycles yet, which would no. be the normal use of uh, escape equipment. Pr- precisely. It doesn't actually give too much detail on how they travelled. It just simply says that uh, with some difficulty we managed to get to Krakow where we found shelter. That shelter is actually quite important because they actually received shelter from the Polish resistance while in Krakow and they were actually there for about four months. So they've arrived there in September 1942 and they've received shelter from the Polish resistance. Now while he's staying with them, he stays with a young Pole whom I got to know who sheltered me for a few days and then found me accommodation with a female friend. Now this young Pole was forging identity cards and suggested that I should sell them in the ghetto of Krakow. So we're talking about the Jewish ghetto here. When we come to talk of moulds again of relative safety within the camp system, we now have a Jewish escaped prisoner of war in civilian clothing Mm -hmm. working for the Polish resistance in the Jewish ghettos of Krakow with all the things that came for the people within the Jewish ghettos of Krakow. No, he did sneak into the ghetto on at least one occasion. Maybe more, but on at least one occasion and did attempt to sell these identity cards to a Jewish gentleman within the ghetto. And he states, I entered into negotiation for the sale of an identity card. He offered me 4,000 zloty for the card but failed to keep a later appointment with me. So on the 4th of January 1943, so we're now into 1943, I went to a cafe in Krakow with a young woman. Immediately we entered the cafe, we saw the man with the Jewish star and also a man who had several times visited the house where I was staying. Those two left the cafe immediately and a little later four policemen arrived and arrested the girl and me, taking us to the Gestapo headquarters by taxi. For some context here, the liquidation of the Jewish ghetto in Krakow took place between June 1942 and March 1943. So we don't just have an escaped Jewish prisoner of war working with the Polish resistance in Krakow in the Jewish ghetto. We have him doing all that in the midst of the liquidation of the ghetto. He's now in the hands of the Gestapo and it would not have taken a lot for them to just add him to some form of transportation. Of course. So the start of the liquidation in June 1942, so a couple of months before he arrives in Krakow, took place with a couple of thousand and sick or ill or elderly Jews being transported off to an extermination camp. Mm-hmm. When we say liquidation, it's not a continuous thing. It happened in bits and pieces. So it started there. This would happen periodically, but it wasn't a continuous clearing out. Perhaps the most famous representation of the liquidation of the Jewish ghetto in Krakow is the girl in the red coat scene in Schindler's List. Of course. Somewhere moved off to the labour camp at Plashov. The remainder who were not fit to work by March 1943 were liquidated in Auschwitz. Of course. So we are talking about he is in a very very serious situation here. We're talking January 1943, less than two months until the full liquidation is carried out. Is carried out. As I said earlier, it is not to be on the Gestapo to just add them to a transportation. They have a Jewish escape prisoner war in their hands. The protecting powers would not know about this. He's in a very serious situation here. So he states that he was kept in the Gestapo headquarters for three days and on each of these he was interrogated. He gave his name, rank and number. Still being Welsh? I can only assume so. And claimed that he was a 
pilot. So he's going straight to the prisoner of war textbook, if you yeah, like. Name, to get that rank, protection. number, to try and get that protection. So he's, I would say he's keeping quite a cool head at this stage. I was asked if I'd been in touch with an organisation in Poland and said that I'd arrived in Poland independently. Which I suppose is technically true, given that he was moved there by the Germans from Dulag Luft to Lambsdorff. So he states, I was asked if they'd been t- in touch with an organisation in Poland. He denies this, and one of his interrogators was actually the man he'd, who had visited several times to the house where he was staying with the Polish resistance, and who had been in the cafe just before my arrest. So this is in, an informant in the Polish resistance. He says that he tried to extract information from me by saying that I could trust him. I would say self-evidently untrue by virtue of the fact that he's currently been held in the Gestapo HQ at Krakow. That he's fairly untrustworthy. Yeah, he's fairly untrustworthy, and Gewelber's not falling for this whatsoever. I refused to answer his question saying that I would not talk until I got back to Stalag 8B Lambsdorff. An NCO then knocked my head against the stove, causing my cigarette to drop out of my mouth. While I went to pick up the cigarette, the same NCO stood on my hand. The interrogations lasted for about 7 hours each day and during the interrogation I was beaten and kicked. The main point of the interrogation seemed to be find out who was making the identity cards which I had been trying to sell and I was shown one of the photographs which had passed through my hands. I was beaten up when I would not say where I got the photo So the actions that he has been involved in with the resistance are now coming back to haunt him a bit. The beatings took place on the first and second days. On the second day, the NCO wanted to put chains on my hands, but an officer forbade this. In addition to be shown photographs, I was confronted with a list of names. Many of the people on the list had helped me, but I denied all knowledge of them. So he's refusing to divulge the names of the helpers that he in the resistance. Yeah. At this stage, we're on to about day two of his beatings and interrogation. He is now just brazening out the torture. Of course. On behalf of the resistance fighters who have helped him. This guy's incredibly brave. Yeah. On the third day, I was given the protocol of the notes made at the interrogation and compelled to sign it without reading it. Now, this doesn't seem to have come back to haunt him. It's effectively signing a confession of something. Of something with the Gestapo. Of course. And we know from other escapes, not necessarily ones that we've covered, but for example, Bushel, where yeah. the Gestapo very clearly said to him, if we catch you again, we will kill you. We know that them having a signed confession of something would have probably been more than enough for them to have taken action had they caught him again. So having survived three days of interrogation and beatings, he states that after the interrogation, I was put into a cell alone for several days. Here I heard the guards say that I was to be executed. However, he was transferred to a prison in Krakow where he stayed for six weeks and was kept in solitary confinement for the entire time. And eventually he was actually taken back to Lambsdorff. Incredibly lucky. Incredibly lucky, but I can also only assume that they just couldn't get anything on him. Yeah. Yeah, because they they wouldn't necessarily have anything on him because the only potential they have is their informant. Mm. But then the information they've put to him, eminently provided by the informant, he's strenuously denied and they can't actually prove it other than the informant's word. No, and it's not unknown for people to survive and brazen out torture by the Gestapo. It wasn't common, but it's not unknown. And so we have to assume that is what took place here, that they couldn't find anything on him and therefore had to release him. We also have to assume that they did not work out that he was Jewish. And he returned to Lambsdorff and he was there for the grand total of one and a half days before he was moved to Stalagluf 3. Ah, Stalagluf 3. The famous Stalagluf 3. Admittedly, he wasn't in Stalagluf 3 all that long, but he was there long enough to at least make another escape attempt. No, really? Yep, absolutely. Uh, He didn't succeed, but on the 30th of May 1943, he attempted to escape with Sergeant James Wilkie of the RAF. We were dressed as German soldiers, and at the second gate, we were stopped by a guard and detected. We were given 14 days in the cells for this attempt. So he basically tried to bluff his way out of the camp gate. Yep. 
he spoke fluent German why not give it a go absolutely he failed but you know recaptured sent to the cooler but he in some ways it almost saved his life because if he'd failed outside the camp he could well have been back in the hands of the Gestapo so to some extent thank goodness he failed inside the camp yes so by this stage I think it's fair to say that Gavelber is an inveterate escaper he's certainly an incredibly brave man to make repeated attempts indeed to escape he was probably a problem prisoner from the Germans perspective I yeah, think that's I probably see fair to say I think that's a very fair statement to make yes and so once again he was moved to another camp so he was moved to Stalglof 6 which is Heidekrug is that fairly common then for problem prisoners to be moved about camps? I guess so they didn't, for want of a better word, poison the minds of other uh, Yeah, and also form networks of helpers, supporters. I see. Get involved in the escape committees. It, it, It wasn't unknown for it to happen. So is it fairly safe to assume problem prisoner, you're likely to be... Moved quite regularly. Yeah, f- fairly fairly well. So although he was given 14 days in the cooler immediately afterwards in style of three, he was actually only there for four days before he was moved to Heidekrug and actually uh, spent the last 10 days of his sentence in the cooler at Heidekrug. Okay. Now, we always consistently use the names of locations as they were then because that's how they're reported in, in the, the report. report. Yes. However, I think it's also useful to try and place it in... Modern day context. Modern day context. So Heidekrug is now Schlute in Lithuania. Now, Heidekrug was the northernmost prisoner war camp within the German Reich. And obviously northern is good because northern areas have coastal ports that can get you to neutral countries. Indeed, indeed they did. What I find quite interesting about the camp is actually its post-war history. Okay. Because after the war, Lithuania was occupied by the Soviets Mm -hmm. and it became a gulag. Oh. Mm. For quite some time. Lovely. So, so they basically just maintained the infrastructure of the camp as it was as a prisoner of war camp and turned it into a gulag. Despite being in the northernmost prisoner of war camp at this stage, he makes one more escape attempt. Okay. So on the 4th of April 1944, he escaped from Stalgloof 4 with a Sergeant Townsend Coles of the RAF. On the previous day, they'd managed to secure entry to the American compound, and at about 1,300 hours on the 4th of April, we walked out of the gate. I was described as a German ferret, which was a, a sort of security soldier. Be looking for evidence of escape activity. Exactly. So there's a certain irony of escaping as a, as a ferret. That's yeah, a nice touch. And Townsend Coles was dressed as a civilian engineer. A diversion was made in the camp to cover our exit both Townsend Coles and myself had forged passes for the gate so again there's there's some evidence of escape committee involvement here but it's also I mean we've, you've, you've, you've said it but I'll just reiterate it he's got forged passes which largely would have been passed off in the dark this is lunchtime in late spring, broad daylight, and he's mm-hmm. trying to pass off forged documents. Mm-hmm. And again, he says that he was chosen to accompany Townsend Coles because of my knowledge of German and Polish. So again, evidence of escape committee involvement in this escape. Of course. From the gate, I conducted Townsend Coles to the sewage plant beside the river. Here I took off my German belt and uniform overalls, under which I'd been wearing a black jacket and blue overall trousers. Townsend Coles had black trousers, a short coat, and a soft hat. Now, before they left the sewage works, they burned their passes, buried the extraneous clothing and started walking towards the Lithuanian frontier. He says, Our intention was to get into Lithuania and if necessary continue to Latvia and Estonia in an effort to get in contact with the Russian partisans. So he was actually intending to 
head east. east. However, when they reached the border, they realised it was actually going to be quite impossible to try and cross because of the swampy nature of the ground, which was covered in snow and it was intensely cold. So having realised that the Lithuanian frontier is basically impassable at this stage, they actually double back and make their way towards a village near Shalute called Yugnatin. So from there, they took a third-class train to a place called Tilsit, which is now Sovetsk. So they've travelled about 50 kilometres. Okay. And then from there, they took a Personenzug, so a slow train at every at, stopper. Every stopper, yeah. Uh, to Königsberg. Now, Königsberg is now Kaliningrad, okay. so it's part of Russia. And by this stage, they've travelled a further 120 kilometres. So they're actually a fair distance away, away from, from the, camp. the camp, yeah. There was no control on either of these trains, which was full of bombed-out German civilians, mostly from Berlin. However, in Königsberg, there was a police control at the station, but they were not amongst those who were stopped. They then continued on by train to Danzig, arriving around about 1900 hours on the evening of the 5th of April. So we've now found ourselves in Danzig, so a Baltic port. Mm-hmm. what is now Gdansk in mm-hmm. Poland the day after he made an escape so he escaped at 1300 hours 1pm 1 yes. on the 4th of April we're now at 1900 hours or 7pm on the 5th of April so in only 28 hours he has travelled a total of around about 320 or 330 oh, kilometres good going it's really good going now he states he was in Danzig until the 19th of April so that's two weeks he doesn't really go into any real detail of what he did in Danzig but I think we can reasonably surmise from what I others have done. They'd be scouting for ships. Exactly. They all kind of went through Baltic ports heading for Sweden. So they're scouting for ships. They're trying to find predominantly Swedish sailors to take them to neutral Sweden. They weren't necessarily against the Danish ship because it takes you in the right direction. It was an occupied country so they were likely to be on site. There'd be further checks. Further checks. When it ports in Denmark, yeah. But ideally you're looking for a Swedish ship at this stage and that's precisely what he did. He actually managed to get on board a ship that took him to Sweden. So he managed to reach Sweden three weeks after escaping from Heidekrug and returned to the UK on the 7th of May 1944 landing at Lookers in Fife. Oh, Hmm. Scotland. Yes. Lovely. Absolutely. So it's not entirely clear what happened to his fellow escapee Sergeant Townsend Coles. The report does state that we arrived in Danzig but only I got on board a ship to Sweden. Okay. There's no record of an escape by a Townsend Coles or any variation of that name. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. So I did find on the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission website that there is a warrant officer, Townsend Coles, who died in July 1944. Oh, so this hasn't got a good outcome. So we don't know for definite what happened to Townsend Coles. However, as I said, there is a record of a Townsend Coles memorialised on the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission website. Okay. And it states that his name is recorded at the Runnymede Memorial. Which would indicate from the Runnymede Memorial is for those who have no known graves. Mm-hmm. So by the mere fact that he hasn't got a grave and didn't make it on the boat and was a prisoner of war, there's something rather sinister potentially around this. Mm-hmm. So I haven't been able to verify this completely but I have found some information that suggests that he was held in a civilian prison at Tilsit. Now, we know that Townsend Coles and Gavelber did travel through Tilsit, that he was held there in May 1944. Just a few weeks after. Just a few weeks after Gavelber's escaped via Danzig and was later charged with espionage and was shot for it. Now, that would potentially tie in with a July 44. It would. Death date. And also, by there being no grave, there's potentially no body which would suggest... At something more sinister than just... 
as we well know, because yeah. that falls in almost perfectly with the time following the Great Escape mm-hmm. and the murder of the 50 officers there. So had this now become potentially a Gestapo involvement again, mm-hmm. the following on from the murder of the officers at Stalagluf 3, mm-hmm. we now have another escaped officer accused of something and suffered the same fate. Absolutely. I think we have to be clear and say some of this is conjecture. We don't know for definite. However, one of my reasons for saying that is if anyone does have any more information on this, we would be really keen to hear from you. Very keen. So though we're covering Gavelber's escape here, this guy did escape with Gavelber. It looks like he was unsuccessful. We don't know why for definite, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that suggests something far more sinister took place around Towns End Coles. So if anyone does have any more information, please get in touch with us. Our contact details are available at the end of the podcast we'd love to hear from you absolutely returning to Gavelber so I was only able to find one further post escape detail okay on the 13th of April 1945 so almost a year to the day after his escape from Danzig yeah which took place on the 25th of April 1944 Mm -hmm. he received a citation to receive a military medal now what's interesting about this is he is now a corporal Jacob Gavelber he is now listed as being part of the Volunteer Reserve. Right. Let me read it out in full. For the Military Medal, there's a citation for Corporal Jacob Gavelber of the RAFVR 33 Squadron. Ah, so he's still 33 Squadron. So, as we've said before, it is not uncommon for ranks as low as an aircraftman to not have a lot of information available about their pre-war, pre-escape, post-escape careers. The one bit of information we have found is that he was awarded a military medal. We don't know what for. However, it is, it's not beyond the realms of possibility it was for this escape. Oh, yeah. I mean, the bravery he's shown throughout is Absolutely. incredibly... Absolutely. So, again, it's conjecture. We don't know for definite if, and again, if anyone does have any further information as to why he received a military medal, we'd love to hear from you. However, I think it's great that he did receive a military medal. It's the one bit of information we have after that took place after his escape. He's received a promotion and he's received a medal in recognition of his efforts. Which, if we face it, to sum up, we, we have traditionally somebody caught who would have had a far safer, less riskier war had he stayed in put because of his religious uh, faith, but then put himself into this situation, escaped several times, Mm -hmm. repeatedly escaped, had Mm -hmm. an awful lot of luck, ended up inside a ghetto at the time of the liquidation, helping the resistance, caught by the Gestapo, survived torture and interrogation, returns to other camps, escaped again, and then managed to get away to a neutral country and get home. Mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely incredible. And what an amazing escape. You couldn't couldn't even have that in a Hollywood film, and yet we know it's a true story. Absolutely. Amazing. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.